We've decided to launch the triple-click connected universe, aka the TCCU. So next week, expect to hear from Iron Man. Welcome to Triple Click, where we bring the games to you. This week, we are talking about connected universes in games like Alan Wake 2, and perhaps Final Fantasy VII Remake, and even movies and books. I'm Jason Schreier. I'm Kirk Hamilton. And I'm Maddie Myers. Hello, my hey. friends. Hello. It's us. I Hello. hope you both had a fantastic Hello. Thanksgiving. <laughs> I did. Good. There it was, was turkey. Nice. There were some mm-hmm. other foods. Didn't Excellent. spatchcock yes. it. You mm. know, Jason, you, you can't stuff a turkey if you spatchcock a turkey. But you don't want to stuff a turkey anyway, because that no, actually... No, I know it's well, dangerous. It's Yeah, there's some, some food safety issues. Jason doesn't want to stuff a turkey. But we're willing to take the risk, because the stuffing from inside a cooked turkey is the best stuffing you could mm. ever have in your life. Yeah, but there mm. are workarounds. What you can do is you can take the drippings from the spatchcock turkey and then sp- and like drip Welcome them. Welcome back on to the Triple stuffing. Cook. <laughs> here we are. Here we go again. I'm just Another saying. Week. There's some Another tips for next Thanksgiving for Thanksgiving 2024. Okay. Um, so I'll, I'll tell mind. you exactly. I'll tell you exactly what I do because this is really important, and I think yep. we need to talk about this. Let's get um, into it. So when I spatchcock the turkey, which means butterflying it, you cut out the backbone and you lay it flat. It cooks much quick, much more quickly and doesn't dry out and stuff. It's really good. And what you do is you put it on top of a bed of, you put it on a wire rack on top of a bed of vegetables, like uh, celery and carrots and leeks and stuff. And then it has all those vegetables are cooked in the turkey fat. So they're delicious. Mm-hmm. And you can either mix them in with the stuffing or just take the drippings and mix that into the stuffing. And it's way better than like stuffing inside of a, a gross turkey. See, that anus. is a huge huge claim to make that that mm-hmm. is quote way better than the stuffing that was inside it is because it won't year. give you food poisoning but neither did the stuffing i ate all this past yeah week. but it's a risk citation it's a risk me not having food poisoning right now that's that's true that's there's fair. definitely some in my opinions missing mm, from this no this is all but, facts mm. we're just spitting facts right here this is all <laughs> don't you think just... that's implied Kirk, by <laughs> like when you podcast you just everything you said if you just mm-hmm. repeated in my opinion over and over again it would just views are my own and not my employer mm-hmm. etc cetera, etc cetera. that's true i suppose it's less fun to have to say that. if you want to hear more from <laughs> triple cook which by the way i think we've pretty much decided that this is going to be a bonus episode next year. Oh, yeah. yeah and what is 100%. a bonus episode, people might be asking? Well, it's what you get if you support our show. We are a listener-supported podcast. You can help us make this show possible by going to MaximumFun.org slash join and becoming a member of our network, Maximum Fun. And if you support the show, you get monthly bonus episodes, including a future one on cooking which we will do and uh, <laughs> at some point I will, we will have to stick in a bunch of in my opinions to uh to yes. mollify kirk over here um <laughs> but in the more imminent future you will also get a spoiler cast a beans cast as we call them on spider-man 2 a game we've all played and finished and are going to talk about and uh that episode will be up by the end of this month so look forward to that or maybe even on, on yeah, Monday, is that true? right kirk is yeah, that it is might it be up actually be up it might be up a little bit soon. at the beginning of december yeah regardless it'll be up it'll be up very very soon so you can get that become a member today go to maximumfund.org slash join all right kirk what are we talking about today Today we are talking about connected universes, which is a topic that we have sort of touched on before, but uh, in a way that I think opened the door to a lot of further conversation. So today we're going to have that further conversation, or at least the next conversation in a chain of further conversations, because connected universes are so hot right now, and uh, there are a lot of different kinds of connected universes. Kirk here, as I edit the episode, just wanted to throw in a bit of a spoiler warning, or at least a spoiler mention. Not a lot of major spoilers in this episode, but we do talk about some of the events of Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse, and also some things that happen in Alan Wake 2. They're nothing super major, just some kind of mid-game story stuff. Uh, If you're super sensitive about either of those two things, I just wanted to let you know. Other than that, most of the stuff we talk about is a lot older, and we just, I don't know, we talk about various stories for some books and some games and some movies. Okay, back to the episode. Bing! So on the show a little while back, we talked about the idea of the metaverse. Our episode was called What's the Deal with the Metaverse? And we talked about the sort of rising prevalence of connected brands and characters turning up in stories that weren't originally their stories. And 
It was an interesting conversation, but I felt like it was missing some defined terms. We kept talking about the metaverse, but that's such a kind of meaningless word, or at least it's a word with many meanings. It's not meaningless. It almost has too many meanings. Meaningful. So true. <laughs> and yes, meaning, meaningful. Meaning, meaningful. Yes. Meaning uh, too full. Meaning overwhelming. I don't actually think the word metaverse is meaningful. I think we should take that back right away. Well, <laughs> it's, it mean, it's spelled differently. Think of meaning dash F-U-L-L instead mm. of F-U-L. Meaning rich. See, this is the whole problem. My friends, this is the whole problem. We are already losing the thread talking about whether or not the word metaverse means anything. Guess what? You can talk about connected universes without talking about the metaverse. You cannot even use that word, which Love you will that. notice I have left entirely out of the taxonomy I have come up with. For this episode. So I thought we would have a conversation about different types of connected universes, those being fictional universes, of course, uh, that, that have, we've come across in various games, in books, in movies, kind of all over the place, just to come up with a framework that we can use going forward when we talk about this kind of thing. Um, and I'll say up front, I'm going to run through the different items, uh, the different types of universes real quick before we get uh, before we get into our conversation. And I just want to say, as with all of these taxonomies we do, uh, something can be multiple, you know, it can fit multiple, defin- like it can be defined as multiple different entries on this list. It can, um, you know, you can have a shared universe that is also has a multiverse within it, for example, to, to pick two of these. So keep that in mind. And also, so this whole thing is kind of a spectrum. Like you don't have to you don't have to be just one thing. You mm. can you can exist all around this. This is more just for the sake of understanding generally where things fit. Okay, so here we go. First of all, we have a regular old shared universe that is a collection of fictional stories and characters that all occupy the same time and place, like the Marvel Cinematic Universe. That's just a shared universe. Those people are all there together, especially leading up to the in the Thanos arc. That was just like a world where a bunch of different stories all took place. Uh, Star Trek, Star Wars, shared universe. Assassin's Creed, shared universe. Okay, then we have a transmediaverse, which is a collection of stories and characters that exist in parallel across different types of media. They occasionally intersect, often abstractly, but sometimes concretely. So that's where you have an adaptation of something into a new media and it's kind of the same, but it's also kind of different. Mm-hmm. And there are times where the one story will make its way into the other story, but it's never like super solid. Like you'll see, um, for example, in the HBO adaptation of The Last of Us, this is kind of a transmedia verse that now exists between the HBO show and the PlayStation games where you'll see like the voice actors from the PlayStation game turn up as other characters in the TV show. And that kind of connects them in a way, but it's this kind of transmedia connection even though they're really separate stories and like different things happen. And then when people start talking about, well, what's going to happen on season two of The Last of Us? When you're talking about the TV show, you are kind of talking about something different from the game. And who knows? Like different things really could happen from the sequel in the game. So that's Transmediaverse. Then we have a multiverse. This is an explicit fictional construct in which multiple timelines exist in parallel, Ugh, allowing for infinite possible characters. Jason the hates worst. multiverses. Oh my God. So we'll get into it. We'll get into Not it. But I just want to make sure this definition is solid because <laughs> this is becoming more and more common as we're seeing something we're talking about and a multiverse exists in the fiction so we're talking everything everywhere all at once we're talking spider-man no way home into the spider-verse flash those flash stories in the arrowverse uh the post thanos mcu with like multiverse of madness dungeons and dragons is actually a fictional multiverse because there are planes of existence anywhere where there are actually like multiple universes and anything can happen within the fiction. That's a multiverse. Mm -hmm. And some might say our real world is a multiverse where there's another version of us where Jason (laughs) likes multiverses and I hate them. Uh Uh (laughs) Right. You could say that. I hate that that version of us. Though for our intents and purposes, we're really just talking about fiction. (laughs) We're not going to talk about it. We've got a couple more here. We've got a couple more here we're going to get into. Uh, First, we have, I think, a very important one. I'm currently calling it a Brandiverse. This is a collection of characters united primarily by their shared brand ownership or licensing deals. So this is... I'm going to use the word, this is, I think, what a lot of people use the word metaverse to describe. That's the last time I'm going to say it. I think thinking of this as a brand-averse, other possible words are like a corpaverse, an IP-averse. Corpaverse. This is a universe that's... 
It's really only connected by the fact that one company or entity owns all of these different characters. So you get Space Jam or Smash Bros. for that matter, uh, multiverses, the Sony-verse, the fact that like there are references to The Last of Us in Horizon Zero Dawn or Horizon Forbidden West. Mm, You've got yeah, PlayStation All-Stars, Battle Royale, Fortnite, of course. Ralph Breaks the Internet where like all the Disney princesses turn up and all these other characters are there. And, like Zangief and everything, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. And also even indie game cameos. Like you'll see the knight from Hollow Knight will turn up in various uh, other games. Like in Dead Cells, there will be Castlevania characters. Like a lot of that is kind of just brand synergy. It's not always bad. It can be cute. But it is like the primary reason that these characters are overlapping is because two people made a deal. And that's a brand of Two companies made, made a deal. Two entities, let's say. Yeah, corporations Because companies are, are people, people now. No. Unfortunately, no. they are because we live in hell. Okay, let's keep going. Uh, we have a couple more. We've got a faniverse or a theoryverse. I kind of like faniverse. This is a shared universe as imagined or defined by fans of an existing set of characters or stories. Like faniverse as if as yeah, in as I as am averse fan to fan. <laughs> so that is a little bit of an issue with this portmanteau. Also, brand averse. Uh-huh. Yeah. Brand-averse. like you're averse like to brand. I like that. So um, maybe it's maybe it's good. So um, faniverse examples include the Zelda timeline. There's a big fan theory of the Zelda timeline that goes beyond any thing that's in the games. Um, the SCP Foundation, which is something Maddie uh, explained to me that she can explain to everyone in a little bit. Mm-hmm. The Pixar theory, which is a theory that all the Pixar movies exist within the same universe. These are not canonical, but they are interesting enough and kind of big enough to be uh, to be considered a, a type of uh, a type of connected universe. And then a subgenre of that is the conspiracy verse, <laughs> which is like QAnon, oh, like no. real world stuff where people like start believing in a kind of fictional universe that is actually super Imposed of our own. We don't have to get into that one here, but I just thought of it when I was thinking of a faniverse. Because what is QAnon? If not if a faniverse. It's so like true. fan fiction of a certain type Jason's of Jason's face was, he looked very worried. <laughs> we need to move on from this. <laughs> Anytime you say the Q word on a podcast, everyone kind of shrinks into their chair. Uh, finally, we have the Abstractiverse, which I think is the most interesting one. It's really the one that brought us all here today. This is a shared universe that's defined abstractly according to shifting rules. It's often, but not always, the product of a single creative vision. So examples of this include the Remedy Connected Universe, we just played Alan Wake 2, but also Zelda or the King of Earth, Stephen King's connected universe. I have a few really interesting examples uh, to talk about uh, with the King of Earth. Final Fantasy works this way. And now Final Fantasy 7 specifically works this way. I think mm. Mario uh, Dungeons and Dragons is a good example of this, where every story takes place within Dungeons and Dragons, but they're all kind of unique. And so an abstractiverse is kind of my current favorite kind of connected universe and that's definitely where Alan Wake 2 lives which is one of the reasons that we wanted to have this conversation because the Remedy connected universe is so interesting. Well wait Kirk you should have put Scott Pilgrim on here because of your one more thing last week which is also Mm. about a creative vision inspiring multiple versions of Scott Pilgrim which which the Triple Click Discord was comparing to Final Fantasy 7 Remake this mm-hmm. past week, and I thought that was a wonderful comparison. Yeah, that's totally true. Um, yeah, the Scott Pilgrim, the new Scott Pilgrim show on Netflix is totally an abstractiverse. So to run them down really quick again, that's shared universe, transmediaverse, multiverse, brandiverse, faniverse, and abstractiverse. So for starters, let's just talk a little bit more about Alan Wake uh, <laughs> 2 and the Remedy Connected the Universe. The real because reason I think, we're here to talk about Alan Wake 2 again. I love it. I think starting at the farthest version of abstraction is a good way to kind of nail down these terms. And um, and yeah, I want to I wanna talk about it a little bit more because that kind of universe, you know, something it's something that we talked about when we talked about that game, I just think is really interesting. Yeah, I agree. I I haven't played enough Alan Wake 2 to know what it's trying to do with all of that and how everything plays in, but um, I did like meet Adi, the janitor in in the game, and and so it's very clear that there are explicit references to other Remedy games, which I think is really interesting given the theme of the game, of the kind of blurred lines between fiction and reality and how that all plays into everything. But it's hard for me to say, like, what's going to... I don't know what's going to happen, so it's hard for me to say what it's all trying to say or 
do with all of that. Um, but I will say that there's always something kind of one of the reasons that all of this stuff is so uh, popular is that it's always a little bit of a thrill when you see something and you're like, aha, I understand this reference. Mm. I get mm-hmm. this. I have seen, I have consumed the previous piece of media that is relevant to this one. So I understand what it is talking about. Um, and that's kind of a cynical way of describing it. But it is kind of, it is a fun thing. Yeah. Yeah. Although I think Alan Wake 2 acknowledges and is self-effacing about that very phenomenon. So you're referring to Adi, who is a character, I think, originally in control, or at least that's yes. the first time I'm familiar with him. But I also know from Alan Wake brainstorm meetings at Polygon that there are many things about the extended world of the Remedyverse that I am not familiar with because Mike Mahardy and Tucson Egan would go on for 16 hours straight or more if I let them <laughs> about every piece of remedy related media that exists in Alan Wake 2 and how they noticed it. And I I do think the game rewards that, Jason. But I also think that the game works because it's about how dangerous conspiratorial thinking can be and like the idea of a cult and the idea of that sort of preying on your mind and like the power of stories as a horror element. I mean, we don't need to get into the conspiracy verse or whatever Kirk called it. But I do think that adds a layer to the horror element of Alan Wake 2 in a way that's very effective. And also, I don't want to say it pokes fun at the idea of somebody connecting all those dots and like having the bits of twine about, say, Stephen King novels. But it does acknowledge that. It is like, this is a pattern of thinking that's very human, but also very scary or can feel very scary and overwhelming and intense. And I think that that's effective and understandable, even if you don't actually get every single reference. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that like in in the real world, we do it to kind of because our minds can't accept randomness and coincidence. And so we kind of try to draw connections and try to make sense of the world sometimes in ways that wind up uh, delusional. And uh, I think that, that that is a very appealing thing and also a very interesting form of storytelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's something that Alan Wake 2 is doing specifically with the cult, actually, and with these characters sort of understanding of this fictional world into which they're thrown. That's really clever, having played through the whole game. Like, there's stuff with the cult, there's stuff with every character in the game where they are reacting to the fact that they're within a story. So mm. it adds yet another layer to this that goes beyond even something like Stephen King does, where eventually you're realizing characters are playing their role within a story with the full knowledge that they're doing that in order to affect a different outcome to the story because they're aware that their reality is being uh, tweaked and adjusted by some author, in this case Alan Wake, like someone outside of their view. But I think I think that this kind of abstract world, like a, a these loose connections between characters can be really cool and it can wind up having surprising amounts of meaning. I think it's something that we're really, I mean, I guess it's been around in books for a long time, but it's something that we're seeing a little bit more of in other media. So I've been listening to Just King Things, of course, my favorite podcast. I think there's a t-shirt that says it's my favorite podcast. So it is my favorite podcast officially. Uh, This is a podcast made by a couple of friends of ours where they talk about Stephen King and they just read through The Regulators and Desperation. Do I, the two of you know those books? Have you read From them? From Just King Things, yes, of course I do. <laughs> but I know okay. I haven't read them. <laughs> so what's cool about The Regulators and Desperation, even beyond the connected Kingiverse, is the way that the two stories interact with one another. And I think that's the kind of thing that Sam Lake really thinks is cool. Sam Lake being the creative director of Remedy, the writer, the primary creative force behind the Remedyverse. Um, so first of all, the Kingiverse is a loosely connected series of ideas that becomes more specific at times and is kind of unified around the Dark Tower series of books that he wrote. But is just it goes all the way from really specific stuff, like in one of the Dark Tower books, they just wander into the stand. And so then for a little while, they're just in the stand. Like, but it's a different version of The Stand than the actual stuff that happens in his novel, The Stand. But it's basically the same. There's a plague. It has a lot of echoes. But then also there's just like there will be a character named Flag. My niece just read The Eyes of the Dragon. The bad guy in that is named Flag. He's not the same as the Flag that turns up in The Stand. He's a different character, but he's kind of the same character. So there are just these unifying 
theories that sort of connect everything. And you can sit down and do the corkboard and connect everything if you want. But the real joy of it is just sort of in relaxing and understanding that it's this one guy's imagination and everything is connected. So what's really cool about um, the regulators in Desperation and what really makes me think of Alan Wake is that the regulators is written by Richard Bachman, which was the pen name Stephen King used early in his career to publish his kind of cast off books, some books that are a little bit in ways more literary, but also just they're not as good, a lot of them, to be to be frank. And more like edgelordy, even though that word didn't really exist in the common parlance back then. <laughs> yeah, especially rage, but yes. but some of in some of the other ones as well. But like The Running Man, uh, that was written by Richard That's Bachman. True, yeah. There are some pretty good books that were written by Bachman. So this this was billed as a book that was uncovered when they, because Richard Bachman died, quote unquote, died <laughs> before the publication of The Regulators, because King was like, okay, I'm going to retire this guy and just publish this myself. So then he decides he wants to do one last hurrah for Richard Bachman. So The Regulators, written by Richard Bachman, at the same time Desperation is published, that's written by Stephen King. Both books have the same characters, but the characters are doing different things. They have the same names, and there are some similarities, but they're very, very different stories, and the characters are doing different things in each story. And I really like this. This is Michael Lutz, one of the co-hosts of Just King Things. He explained this theory as basically... Uh, the Regulators is this kind of lurid, really violent book where all the characters are acting like Bachman archetypes. And then at the end of that book, this evil god kind of says, I'll get you. I'll be back to get you. And then they fight the same evil god in desperation as different people, almost like they're in a different universe. And they close the book on the evil god finally. And it's a way that Stephen King is kind of saying, I'm closing the book on Richard Bachman. Sounds like Oracle of Ages and Oracle of Seasons Whoa, of the Legend yeah. of Zelda. Those Zelda games, yeah. Huh. It's a really cool idea and I think um, a really cool read that kind of adds a little bit more meaning uh, to both of the books. And it's the kind of thing that when I'm playing Alan Wake and I'm watching Sam Lake, who provided the face of Max Payne, playing a character named Alex Casey who looks just like Max Payne <laughs> but is actually a fictional character written by Alan Wake, like I get those same kinds of layers in that. Yeah, Okay, can I talk about the SCP Foundation for a second, Kirk? Because I Please. am now not entirely sure if I even think it fits into the Faniverse definition, but let's talk it out and maybe we can solve it together. Okay. So technically, the SCP Foundation, it, was, it wasn't really founded because it first was on 4chan and who the heck knows anything on 4chan, who was the first to do anything. But 2007 mm -hmm. and 2008 are two of the years that I found when trying to track down when it first started. But at this point, it's basically just a really huge collection of uh, fan written wiki entries that are like creepypasta style horror. And if you don't know what creepypasta is, we did an episode early in triple click history with Patricia Hernandez, where we talked about the idea of creepypastas as like a horror storytelling format that emerged on the internet and was popularized by the internet and just kind of the ways that people create mimetic and shareable content and like urban legends. And uh, so the SCP Foundation basically taps into that sensation um, by being a system where you can submit uh, descriptions of artifacts or descriptions of phenomenons that you've seen, phenomena, that's the plural mm -hmm. word, that you've seen in the world or that you're claiming to have seen in the world, like something kind of like a Slender Man, although he's not actually an SCP fixture, he's a different meme, but whatever, you guys get what I'm saying. That idea, and then that yeah. can be a part of SCP, which stands for Secure, Contain, and Protect, by the way. So it's sort of this fictional catalog slash organization that is tracking all these different paranormal phenomena with with some unstated goal, sort of like how in Control, the video game that took a lot of inspiration from this format, uh, I can't remember now, which is crazy, what it's called in Control. And the Federal Alan Bureau Wake, the of Federal Control. Bureau, I mean, this Bureau. sounds like yeah, the Federal the, the Bureau, Bureau of Control, Yeah, who also turn up in Alan Wake too. Right. Course. And so when you're looking at... Uh, just kind of artifacts in the world of control or Alan Wake 2, you might see like a piece of paper accompanying it that has like blacked out words. And that's been redacted by this, this organization. And that originated, I believe, with the SCP structure where they have certain blacked out words just because I, I think it looks cool. Like, like to read a wiki entry and have the blacked out words and be like, oh, nobody even knows what that was supposed to say. You it know, just looks cool. I think, 
I think the black dot words also serve an important function in control in particular, because since we're talking about an actual video game written by people, yep. I think the black dot words are crucial because they leave space for your imagination. Exactly. And that's a really important part of this like abstractiverse, this yes. kind of connected universe. Where and horror where you're letting your mind yes. fill in the blanks that can be way scarier than anything somebody could actually write in their little wiki entry that they've submitted. But unlike Control or Alan Wake as a series, the SCP Foundation isn't controlled by a brand. It's not controlled by a corporation. There's no Kevin Feige who's making sure everything lines up perfectly. Like it, it definitely doesn't line up perfectly. You get what I'm saying? Like it's, it's, it's kind of a hodgepodge of different concepts and ideas and tones, although it's all horror adjacent and it's all supernatural. And there's a certain format that everyone's grown accustomed to over time. And enough so that it inspired directly and Remedy designers have said this openly. There's, there's no ripoff happening here. It's just a direct inspiration to the way that Control's Bureau operates. So it's like a reverse faniverse, I guess. So this this raises a good question that I think um, I think this is a good transition into just talking about why some of these work better than others and yeah. what we like about some of these versus others. Because what I am really finding, at least lately, that I enjoy, I really enjoy it when there's room for me when it doesn't have to all tie together because it frankly gets a little exhausting after a certain while. For me as an audience member, I can only imagine how exhausting it is for a writer if you need everything to connect and it all needs to lock in. Like we all watched The Wire. It was really amazing the way they did that by the end, but not everything needs to interlock quite so incredibly. And actually it can be really fun when you're you have a lot of room to imagine. But, Jason, I know you don't like multiverses. And let's go back to the idea of a multiverse. This is a fictional multiverse where there's a, an infinite multiverse of possibilities. And I'm curious what it is exactly. I know you've said this before on the show, but what it is exactly that you don't like about multiverses. Sure, it eliminates the stakes. And the whole appeal of the MCU in the first place is that, like, hey, you're watching these characters grow and change and everything happens in a meaningful way. And, oh, hey, Avengers in 2012. Uh, what's his name? Phil uh, Coulson. Coulson? Falson? Whatever his Coulson, name is. Coulson, yeah. Coulson. Mm -hmm. Uh, dies and he's a character who you knew in previous films and whoa he's actually dead and and he's he's staying dead for the future I guess he's it's retconned in a TV show but whatever putting that aside um, things seem to matter in a way that they hadn't in uh, kind of other properties and it felt more like a big interconnected TV show than anything else and I've always loved that sort of serialized story storytelling and when you add a multiverse to the equation suddenly none of, nothing matters anymore and you could be watching someone and it doesn't really matter how their motivations change and 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 uh, like what happens to their character growth because oh no here's another version of them to replace it like um Gamora in Guardians yeah. of the Galaxy um or like um if someone dies it doesn't matter because they could just pop back up which I know is a whole big thing in comics but I mean that's one of the reasons that I never got into comics is because there were no stakes to any of these stories and they just really mattered on kind of like a microcosmic basis which doesn't interest me as much as watching a big unfolding uh, narrative um, and so yeah this idea that like uh, nothing really matters it just makes everything feel like a waste of time very different type of storytelling than the kind of uh, leaving leaving blanks for you to fill in or leaving mm -hmm. things ambiguous in their connectivity um, we're talking about a very different kind of uh, connected universe in, in the MCU or really anything with a multiverse attached to it but um, I think no matter what kind of story you're telling, if it doesn't feel to me like there are stakes and consequences and growth attached, I'm always just going to be pissed. I hate anything. Anytime a, a show is like, and here's this character who uh, throws out everything you knew about the character in the last four seasons or whatever it is. I'm always just like, no, I think I'm done. I'm done with you now. Mm -hmm. So I'm I'm chewing on that because I can think of some multiversal stories, some of the examples I gave that really work, and I'm chewing on why it is that they work or how they maybe defy uh, the thing that you're complaining about. Because I agree, the minute you just say, oh, psych, Gamora isn't really dead because there's another version of her, oh, Loki isn't really dead, mm -hmm. there was just another version of him, we grabbed him and when we traveled back in time and now he's the main character of his own show, mm -hmm. it really kind of 
yeah, it kills the impact of the moment you just experienced where Loki was killed and it was like really sad. And you're like, oh man, Loki died. Like he's immediately back alive. And now the most recent, the most recent story, I believe it was the Hollywood Reporter reported that they're considering doing an Avengers, original Avengers, like <laughs> bringing them all back to life. Right. Bringing back Iron Man and paying him a billion dollars yeah. to be in the movie again. <laughs> yeah. So I think. I think that, that there's like an overlap almost between that kind of multiversal storytelling and the Brandiverse feeling yeah. where it's like we're just bringing in these characters because you know you like them and we're really just doing and it. paying RDJ a million dollars, as you just said, like you inherently brought in the corporate aspect of what would right. need to be achievable in real life mm. in order for the fiction to work. Like we can't mm-hmm. not right. think about that. But go on. It just has that it has that feeling of like these are the characters that we have control of. These are the things we can do to kind of help sell this and get people interested in it rather than this is a story we can only really tell using a multiverse. Because two examples, two movies that I've recently watched and have really enjoyed are Everything Everywhere All at Once and Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, both of which embraced the multiverse as a really vital aspect of the story without losing sight of the stakes. And I guess it's because both focus on a single character. Everything Everywhere All at Once is so great because the main character is split into this multiversal reality that she didn't realize existed. And she gets to see all these versions of her life based on the decisions she might have made or just how things maybe could have gone differently. And then channel all those versions of herself into like this new version of herself that she gets to become. And it's all about her. I mean, you're you're following this woman through the whole story. And whatever universe she's in, uh, in the multiverse, she's still herself. And it's really about her in the end. She's the same character at the end as she was at the beginning. She's just gone through all these changes and learned so much. And then Across the Spider-Verse is kind of the same way, where Miles Morales winds up being the most important character, really, because he's kind of at the heart of this... um, you know, what anomaly that's happened that's causing the multiverse, all this instability in the multiverse, because in the last movie he like the whole reason that he's spider-man is kind of at the heart of this instability so we follow him as he kind of you know it's really about him feeling alienated and not being able to fit in and not feeling like he's really spider-man it's all about his character even to the point that toward the end of the film you know you meet another miles morales Mm -hmm. there is another character but it winds up being a really important moment for the main character. Like it focuses on him because he's seeing a totally different version of himself that might have existed in a very different world. And like, so it can work if it stays focused on characters and doesn't focus on undoing stakes just for the sake of bringing back actors and, you know, being able to sell the next movie. Mm -hmm. Well, right. So what you're talking about also is a more contained story, a story that is like following a single narrative. It's kind of like when I think about time travel stories, there are some that are very messy and some that are very well executed and the ones that are well executed almost always follow the same rule which is that like even if you as a time traveler are going back in time you are still following a linear path you cannot go back and just like change the events of your life and wind up in a whole paradox and and create all sorts of messiness and messy stakes and so you are still following an arc of growth even if you are doing it from 2023 back to 1980 and then to the 1700s and then to 2000 or whatever it is um so that's that's the best storytelling is when you have that kind of the character arc the character growth the character going through obstacles and overcoming them or failing to overcome them and what that means for that character. And the flip side of that is what what the, the monstrous mess of the MCU right now, where you have no idea who is where or when and who, why it all, what it all actually means or who, what the stakes are for each character. And everything is just reversed constantly and flipped around. And I mean, there, there are a few reasons for that. And, and there are a few reasons that it's become such a disaster. But like so much of it is like you look at these characters and their stakes and their desires and their arcs and none of it really matters because the multiverse can just deliver on it. I mean, the Wanda stuff is a perfect example. Um, she has this fantastic story about grief and overcoming the loss of, of uh, vision, her lover, by like creating a false reality and like what that means and all that other stuff. And then it's just totally derailed by creating a story where there actually are other universes where she can go get vision and like live her life with him. And so none of it actually <laughs> matters. It's just so frustrating um, as a person who <laughs> likes good stories and mm-hmm. enjoys the craft of storytelling. 
I think it helps that I know you haven't seen Across the Spider-Verse, Jason, and I it's fine if you never watch it. I understand where you're coming from on this. But I think part of why that movie works when it comes to this concept is that even though theoretically the characters could go to another universe and, quote, fix it, like save their, you know, tragically murdered child or father or whatever led to their superhero antics in the first place, their, their tragic event that led to their gritty revenge arc, as many of the, the Spider-Men's have, uh, even if they could go to some other universe and, and save that person, it would destroy something else in that universe. And that's made very clear repeatedly in that movie that like mucking around in the other universes is, is an issue and, and has uh, just fall off effects basically, like causes this sort of background radiation effect on every shared universe. And therefore there isn't kind of a multiverse in the sense that you dislike, because really it's all part of this same mm. larger universe <laughs> this is another right, episode right. where Everyone I'm like, is... I'm not high right now, but... No, everyone's <laughs> moving according to a sort of set trajectory. And right. then a lot of the story is about Miles rebelling against That's that. Right. because which is attractive. Central to who he is. Because is... really, we're talking about free will here. And <laughs> that's yeah. like really what I think makes a hero attractive. So there's the idea in Across the Spider-Verse that has become really popular on like TikTok and social media that I just referred to obliquely, which is a, called a canon event quote unquote, which is like this idea of something that has to happen in your life that makes you who you are. And like for Spider-Man, it's like the death of Uncle Ben, for example. In many Spider-Man stories, there's something like that, that he can never save Uncle Ben in time. And then he becomes Spider-Man and remembers forever that that dark day. And like all the different Spider-Mans or gals or whatever uh, have something like that, some quote unquote canon event, capital C, capital E. And like people now online kind of talk about the idea of a canon event in their own life lives in like a joking way. But the irony of that is that the movie is asserting through Miles that it is possible to potentially undo what we believe to be well, the canon the tension. events it's the tension in our of own the lives. Story. Right. And that I think is very attractive. And I think everything, everywhere, all at once, and some of the best stories, like I would argue Alan Wake 2, although I haven't beaten it yet, but like it's the idea of seeing a fate that may even be a horrifying fate and then daring to try to change it, even if every force in the world is telling you, like, this is your fate, this is what has to happen to you, everything is dooming you or leading you to this horrible thing. And you, the hero, are like, well, no, I'm going to keep trying to change it anyway, because that's an unjust system that I'm fighting back against. And that, I think, is what's so attractive just both as a horror concept and also just as like a hero concept. Well, so part of this also is that like um, with the MCU specifically, there were a set of rules established and then those rules were suddenly changed. If it had started off as a multiverse story that was exploring oh, sure. the types of themes and obstacles mm. that you're talking about, as it would feel did. very different. Right. That's what I mean. And it would feel very different than uh, a universe that is like, we're setting these stakes. If yep. characters die, they die. Like here, there are consequences here. Look, we're doing, we're setting an entire movie that's setting up to Iron Man's ultimate sacrifice. Only if they were to then bring him back five years later, it would feel like the ultimate rug pull. And that's what's frustrating about suddenly adding this concept of a multiverse to this universe that had previously been set up to actually have events that mattered. Because mm -hmm. yes, you're right. The multiverse can establish interesting concepts. Can you change fate? What does that mean? What does that look like? Those are interesting ideas. It's it's just that when you're introducing him to a universe that had other was was setting totally different rules before that, it just throws everything out of whack. Yeah, I think that's a very important observation that it really matters if you shift from one kind of story to another one. For sure. Everything everywhere all at once is written and conceived of and executed as a story about the multiverse. Same thing with Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse. And as a result, the multiverse winds up being this force in the story that the protagonist is working with and against. Like, it's a really important part of the narrative framework. Mm -hmm. What you're describing is very, very different when it's like, oh, uh, we don't really know what to do, but we we want to bring back uh, Scarlett Johansson. We want to bring back, you know, whoever, whatever character who died. Let's yep. uh, let's do a multiverse. Mm -hmm. it, and time travel is very similar. I think yeah. a lot of the, the reason that people get frustrated with time travel is sometimes stories will just introduce it just because they need to retcon something or they want to bring a character back. They want to change something. And as a result, you don't really get a very meaningful like character interaction with time travel. I'm thinking about actually speaking of Stephen King, 
112263 is a fantastic time travel story. And one of the really cool things about the framework of that story is the way that time works almost as a character. So that's the story of a guy who travels through this portal back to the 19, late 1950s, and he's trying to prevent the assassination of JFK because Stephen King is obsessed with the assassination of JFK. And also because this character has basically identified that maybe if you're going to do one thing in the past and change one thing, that would have the biggest downstream impact and would maybe make the world a better place. So then it's a really great story on a number of levels, a great book. One of the cool things about time, though, is that each time he goes back a few times to try to get it right. And time kind of fights against him. He's always it's really hard to change things. And it's something that he finds over the course of the book. There's just this inelasticity to certain events. And as you start drawing closer and closer to a major event, what you would maybe even call a canon event, like the assassination of JFK is like a canon event (laughs) for the United States of America. It kind of is in that way that 9-11 is or whatever. Um, As he draws closer to that canon event, time becomes more and more rigid and it gets harder and harder for him to change it, which is a really cool concept and winds up introducing the mechanism itself, in this case, time travel, or in the case of uh, Across the Spider-Verse, the multiverse, that mechanism becomes like a character that the protagonist has to fight against. And that is really cool. That makes this kind of story work in a way that it it usually just doesn't feel that well considered when it's just being inserted so we can bring back characters who die. Mm-hmm. It also sometimes can feel like the characters fighting the author, literally. Like if they're fighting against time or the system of the multiverses, it feels as though they're fighting against the idea of being in a story, which is also right. something I love so much about Alan Wake 2 and also yes. Miles and Across the Spider-Verse because it feels like Miles is facing the camera and being like, why did you write my story like this? Like, why did this, why does like, this have to happen right. to why me? Why do the people and I care about have to be Exactly, yeah. and like that is such a interesting and uncomfortable for the audience, but thrilling sensation to like have a character turn to you or turn to Sam Lake and be like, why are you doing this to me, man? Like, it it's really so is. It's cool. something that, it's something that Sam Lake has been interested in forever in the very first Max Wake, uh, in the very Max first Max Payne. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's goes to show that's, that's, that's how they're called. all merging yeah. together in my brain. Uh, in the very first Max Payne, there's a sequence where he takes drugs and realizes that he's in a video game. It's Amazing. kind of a graphic novel sort of cutscene. That's how the cutscenes play out. And he's like looking at the camera, basically being like, "Oh my god, how perverse! My life was a video game." I looked <laughs> at the at the heads up display, which is a very a very Max Payne thing to have happen, and something that I think Sam Lake has just been interested in this whole time because he's created now a fictional world where the thing we're talking about, you know, Miles Morales turning to the writers and saying, "Why did you write? Why did you write this in?" That's what Saga Anderson is doing to Alan Wake. Yeah. She's like, dude, wait a minute. My daughter is dead now? Yeah. Like, no, she's not. My daughter is alive. <laughs> not like, why, why did you write it this way, you <laughs> asshole? And like, there are literally scenes where she gets to confront the writer because the writer is himself a fictional character within the broader world, which is just one layer deep, I suppose, mm-hmm. of abstraction into this kind of uh, beguiling abstract diverse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> This makes me want to read some Stephen King. That's really what I think when I play All Awake 2. I'm like, I just got to read some more Stephen King. The, you know? the fun, the, <laughs> to me, the parts that are most fun about the Kingiverse aren't like the direct connections, like what you were talking For about. For sure. Kirk. It's when he just like randomly slips in a like, oh, I heard about this other thing happening in Salem yeah. next yes, door. Yeah. And it's just like a random mm-hmm. reference. Like, hey, what about that one time that town was covered by an alien bubble? And <laughs> or like there that, was those like are, that those hotel that was haunted uh-huh, and then like yeah, a bunch of yeah, bad yeah. shit happened there mm-hmm. that was down yeah. the street yeah yep. that's yeah, yeah, those yeah. are fun or even the echoes there will be times where someone will say something like there are other worlds than these some mm-hmm. of those iconic quotes from books will turn up in other books just sort of as echoes and he gets to play with that sort of thing I yeah think. and that also feels like stephen king like having the rare opportunity that i guess sam lake is also getting where he gets to talk to his own characters almost and be like what if i could do it a little differently like that's how mm-hmm. it feels to me when he's like rewriting his own stories is almost like the characters pushing back against his own brain and he's like all right fine let me let me do it a different way for you guys <laughs> and, <laughs> That's entertaining. Yeah, it's such a difference between between that and the way that, you know, I don't know, Feige puts together the MCU. It's yeah. this more playful and interactive way of writing stories, which is how Stephen King writes, right? He's like long been on the record for not really making outlines. He kind of just writes yep. the story and see what's ha- what happens. And he's kind of in this interactive space with his own characters, just trying to figure out what they're going to do next. <laughs> and then a lot of times that leads him to these weird cul-de-sacs where he then doesn't know how to write his way out and just sort of 
sets off a bomb like in the stand to just be like, I don't know, whatever, we need to get into the last uh-huh, act. Uh-huh. Yep. But it gives him this really cool relationship with his characters and lets them stretch and almost talk back to him in ways that I can only really imagine what happens in his brain when he's writing. But it's really cool. And it's cool to see more authors and more writers emulating that. I think mm-hmm. that is one of the really fun things about Alan Wake is this sense of playfulness that's afforded by having such loose rules. You just are like, you know, Sam Lake is like, I don't know, we're going to write some songs about <laughs> what happened in Alan Wake and we're going to do a whole friggin' rock opera and like, that'll be fine, that'll be fun. Like, let's see what happens. And then mm-hmm. they do that and then just kind of keep moving through the story to the next thing. And I think that must be really freeing and it's really fun as a player. Mm-hmm. And it's it's also a very video gamey way to think about a story. Like it's like the Prince of Persia, like, oh, that's not how it really happened. I didn't right. die there. I actually leapt over the, the ravine or whatever it is. And it's kind of like how people who maybe don't play a lot of games nowadays think of ga- all games as being is like, oh, it, it can end any way you want. Anything can happen. You have ultimate mm. control. But like as the author of a game or, or authors of a game experience, you can kind of play into the ultimate dream of that and be like, yeah, okay, what if it could actually happen any which Mm -hmm. way? What would it be like for the characters to exist in a world like that? What would happen to Mario when he dies? We're all (laughs) asking that. One day we'll, in the last episode of Triple Click, we'll answer that question. The final episode. I mean, we haven't even gotten into the Nintendo of it all. I know, we didn't even get to Zelda. The way that Link is sitting there singing songs from different Zelda games, like he's kind of remembering them, even though we don't know if those games. How does he know them? It's so weird to think about it. It's pretty abstract. I think that that a lot of those those Nintendo games, are uh, they're not meticulously put together. I think that's where I'm coming down. Uh, from looking at all of this is that I, I really like all of these connected universes that are loosely connected, abstractly connected. Yeah, mm-hmm. a little little sloppy, little mess, little yeah, bit of let messy. it be yeah. a little sloppy. We don't need everything to tie up so so neatly. Uh huh, uh huh, uh huh. All right. Yeah, I agree. Well, so just to run those down really quick before we take a break, <laughs> we've got shared universe, <laughs> transmediaverse, multiverse, brandiverse, faniverse, and abstractiverse, and we'll put those in the Easy. show notes. So simple. Easy to understand. Easy to understand, and uh, we'll try to we'll put this one on the list of taxonomies so that we can reference back to it often whenever we're trying to categorize some connected universe or others. All right, let's take a break, and then we'll be back with one more thing. Folks, we get it. Keeping up with an actual play podcast in this economy is a tough sell. That's why we have great news for you. The Adventure Zone is changing up its format. We're going to be doing some shorter seasons, more experimental stuff. There's never been a better time to get on board the zone. And if you're sick of listening to our voices, we get that too. So we're including some guests Uh, on this upcoming one. We've got Kate Welch and Gabe Hicks, who are incredible. And you want us to try out some new games? You got it. We've got the new Marvel Multiverse RPG. We're using that and with a really brilliant GM doing it. It's dad. What he's saying is it's dad. Dad is doing it. It's dad doing it. You can listen every Thursday on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm glad you said that because nobody says that. Can I just say thank you to you for such a thoughtful interview? Oh, my God. Yeah, I think you nailed it. Bullseye. Interviews with creators you love and creators you need to know. Listen to the Bullseye podcast only from NPR and Maximum Fun. And we are back with one more thing. Maddie, why don't you take us away? Sure. So I'm catching up on a lot of video games for the end of the year right now. And uh, I circled back and played a game called Venba that came out in July of this year. I, I played it for PC, but it's out for uh, I think every console and uh, I really really recommend this game you can finish it in a couple hours it's and we love that do I need to say anything else we do can I just end it there that's it that's it so everyone's downloading it's great Uh, but it's um it's the kind of game where I'm amazed by what games can do for lack of a less corny way to put it like it feels Mm. like something that is is uniquely done in a game. Like, yes, it's a story, but it's not like, oh, you're just clicking through text and you're like, okay, yeah, this is a game, but it's not necessarily interactive. It's a cooking game where there are also stories being told around this household of people who are cooking together, but those stories are also told through the dishes that they and you, the player, are making. And that interweaves perfectly and feels really well paced. Like if you have a short game, it can really 
just nail the pacing. And I feel like I see that so rarely in games and that hugely recommends it. I don't want to spoil it too much, but I'll just sort of briefly summarize. Venba's the name of, um, at first, a sort of young woman who's sort of newly married Indian immigrant in Canada, married to a guy who doesn't know how to cook very well. That's the very first scene is that she's getting over a cold. He they should don't... become a member of Triple Cook. <laughs> he listen should become a member of Triple Cook, but he doesn't listening. need to because his wife Venva is going to cook him a meal and you, the player, sort of assist with that. And then they have a child together and then the kid grows up and you kind of see his whole life and then he becomes an adult and has sort of mixed feelings about his identity and food is inextricably linked to that. There's a lot of moments where he talks about like not wanting to eat Indian food at school in front of other people because he's ashamed of, of it. And it just, I mean, it gets really deep and intense. There are parts where I cried. I don't want to spoil those parts, but the game really made me think a lot about kids I knew. I didn't grow up in Canada, but I did grow up in North America in the suburbs. And I knew lots of kids with parents who were immigrants who didn't speak English well and had certain cultural cuisines that they took over. And then kids would bring different foods to school and have shame about it. And I remember my friends expressing that to me. And I wish that I could have played this game in high school, not because I think I like dealt with it poorly or something, but because it just really spoke to like the questions I remember having when I was 15, if that makes sense. Like it really yeah. resonated in a certain way and it just felt like a really cool and sad and then poignant and ultimately uplifting and beautiful story about the ways that food can play a role in how we see ourselves. And it's also a cooking game. <laughs> and that's just really, really cool. Like I love the cooking elements of the game and I just, I don't know. I have, I have nothing but good things to say about Venba. It, if, if there were like a category for two-hour games, this would win everything. I think it would, it could, it would always nice. be Zelda and Baldur's Gate, you know. But like, it's hard to even think about it in those terms, because it's like its own thing. So yeah, I really recommend it. It's called Venba. Sweet. I have that downloaded onto my one more thing, so I'll go next. You will love it. Yeah, I'm ready to play it. I've seen a lot of great reviews of it, and it looks lovely. Uh, it's just really the screenshots. Gorgeous. It. The, it's so colorful and just really doesn't look like anything else. It will um, make you want to cook immediately, also. That's fine. I've been cooking a lot lately. <laughs> it will and then make uh, you we, I can cook and we can food. talk about it on Triple Cook <laughs> next year. So, my one more thing is a new piece of hardware that I was sent by Valve called the Steam Deck OLED. Uh, and Jason Schreier, I gather you have one of these as well. I do. And I wanted to talk about it a little bit because it's pretty sweet. And it uh, is a – man, it's a real reminder, first of all, how great the Steam Deck is in general. And second of what a great job Valve is doing with this thing. I think – I don't know. I played a lot of Steam Deck last year and played a little bit less this year. And part of the reason for that is that I got a new gaming monitor. I think it was my one more thing a little while back. And it's an OLED gaming monitor with HDR with high dynamic range lighting. And it looks great. And as a result, I really wanted to play video games on that. And I didn't want to play quite as much on my Steam Deck. And now there's a Steam Deck that has a screen <laughs> that is an OLED screen with HDR built in, which I've never seen in a handheld before. Wild. Super wild. If you play something like, I don't know, Ori and the Will of the Wisps on yep. this thing, it's crazy looking. Like, I, I never got a um, the Switch OLED. I just have my original Switch, which has an LCD screen. I always thought it looked fine. I've seen the Switch OLED, and it does look a lot better. But because I didn't have one, ignorance was bliss. And now there's basically just a new Steam Deck model. Model that is, I think Valve has even acknowledged this, everything the Steam Deck should have been when it launched. It's just like the ultimate version of this first-gen machine, and then it sounds like they're probably not going to replace it for another couple of years. So I guess I wanted to talk about it both to, again, just express how impressed I am with OLED and HDR, like what a big difference that makes, both on a computer monitor or on a handheld. Um, HDR was not something that I thought was a very big deal up until I got that monitor that had it and saw just how incredible things can look and how, I don't know, experience how much that makes me like a game more, just having that kind of beautiful thing in front of me. It, it almost feels like OLED and HDR are like what people thought 4K would be. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think both are so much more important mm -hmm. than higher pixel density. Like OLED, to explain to anybody who hasn't seen an OLED screen or doesn't exactly know what it is, really what it lets you do is go pure black. 
And that it's not something I ever thought about with LCD screens until people started complaining about it. But LCD screens have a backlight, so they just never get black. Like it gets dark, but then when it is black, you can actually see the outline of the screen. You can kind of on a bad one, you can see like white even kind of in the black. Where an OLED screen, like I think it's that each pixel on the screen can go like the full all the way down to black or any other color. So the colors are more vivid, but also when things are dark, it's just like dark. So if you're playing a game like Alan Wake, for example, where it's really dark, it's just like black. Like there isn't that kind of washed out gray thing. And it makes a surprising difference. And then HDR just has like a way brighter bright point and a much like, well, a higher dynamic range of lighting. So you just get this feeling like your eyes are looking at the sun sometimes or like they're looking at a real thing instead of at a screen. So when you see them both together, it really is remarkable. Um, I do want to say that I know a lot of people have already bought Steam Decks, and I'm sure there are people feeling pretty burned by it. I saw lots of comments from people who had like just bought a Steam Deck last week or whenever they announced it, I guess a few weeks ago. And this announcement came out of nowhere. And they're like, dude, I just ordered one of these. And now they just announced... That's bad timing. For what it's worth, I, I wrote a story about it and, and tweeted about it and stuff. Uh, despite, like, other than the people who got, like, boned by really bad timing, most people, I actually expected more anger about a mid-gen refresh. Most people are actually pretty stoked about this thing, for what it's worth. Yeah. And I think I'm really speaking to someone who's hearing me say this and they're thinking, dude... I bought it like a couple years ago, and that sounds awesome. And it is awesome, but the Steam Deck is still awesome. And I think it's actually really cool that Valve didn't upgrade the hardware. I know they, it's a little like there's a fast, there's a higher refresh rate on the screen. So there's like a slightly better response time, better battery, also. Yes, the battery is significantly better. I just went on a trip and played it. And it's a little lighter, actually. It feels a little better to hold. So there's like, there are things that are better about it, but it doesn't perform better. And it's basically the same experience. And I actually really like the Steam Deck as a streaming device to stream from my PC or from my PS5. It's pretty much the same there. I mean, you can stream in HDR from PC, but it's basically the same. So if you have an original Steam Deck, I think, I don't know. I mean, it's up to you, whatever, you know, make your own decisions. But it's not like this is actually, you know, whatever, a faster chip that really is just kind of better, but not like a huge generational leap, just a little bit better. I think that would make it harder to make the decision to just stick with the original one. But if you haven't bought one yet, I mean, damn. If nothing else, this is a, it, it really is a reminder that Valve seems committed to this device and they really want to kind of keep it going and become a company that makes the Steam Deck, which is just kind of cool. Yeah, they are. I spoke to Lawrence Yang, who's like one of the designers, one of the lead designers on this thing, um, for uh, my Bloomberg piece about it. And um, he told me that they do have a Steam Deck 2 in the works. They're like currently mm-hmm. figuring it out. It's going to be like a big next gen upgrade. I don't think the tech is quite so there yet. <laughs> um, but that's not for two to three years from now. So right. like now, if you're gonna if you're gonna upgrade, you're not gonna get burned for another couple of years. This he said is the de- definitive first gen thing. And yes, the success of the first one he told me they wouldn't say how many cop- how many units they sold but multiple millions he told me um so the success of that has pretty much driven them to be like okay this is a real thing and one thing i'll say real quick is that like if you are not sure if you're on the fence about a steam deck i think what's really cool about it isn't just the portability and i've been playing diablo 4 on this thing and in bed while watching tv it's amazing it looks incredible yes. on the oled screen um mm-hmm. what's really cool about this i think is that it really makes buying a pc approachable in a way that it hadn't been before. There are a lot of people yes. out there who are intimidated for whatever reason about the expense involved in a PC, the the time involved in building one, all that mm-hmm. other stuff. Or this maybe they really want a laptop that can play games, but they don't know what to get. This is also simplifying that. Like it's a less expensive yeah, option. Yeah, well, it's portable. So yeah, exactly. and it's it's a and it's a less expensive option for sure. And it's just kind of it's it's a little bit finicky, um but it's gotten way better over time. And it's actually yeah. pretty simple to just like get games running on the thing. And on top of that, you kind of the expenses even out as opposed to a console because so many games on Steam are on sale all the time and there's so many different options that like you can wind up saving money in the long run if you go with this as opposed to a PS5 or whatever. So I think it's a really good buy. That's very true, especially the games that 
play really well on the Steam Deck are older, and they mm-hmm. tend to go on sale for peanuts on Steam. And it is, it's such a funny uh, realization almost of Steam Machines, that ill-fated Valve initiative so long ago, like 10 years ago or more. Right. And we I feel like we couldn't have gotten here if not for that. I still remember right. being at Valve um, yep. in like 2012, and they were showing off the big Steam big picture mode for the first time. And yeah, and the, the weird controllers, do you remember those without the joystick? Oh, yeah. Well, that's how those, those were kind of the prototypes for yeah. what exactly. the Steam Deck uses. Uh, there's a lot of kind of, it's been a journey to get to this point. <laughs> but the thing about Steam machines is that they didn't even make Steam machines. They like put right. a branding on other people's hardware. This is them making hardware. So they're like all in on this thing. And that's why it's so impressive. It's because Valve like straight up designed the thing and, and is manufacturing this thing. Yeah, and this, I mean, the Steam Deck itself is just a self-contained device in a way that a Steam machine never could be because it just wasn't. It was just a PC. You had to plug it into a TV. It just, there was not enough to distinguish it from a PC where playing a Steam Deck that is its own thing. There's nothing else like it. I mean, I know there are imitators and there are other brands that make uh, portable PCs as well, but it really does stand alone. And that, I think, helps them just be out front, along with the fact that they're, it seamlessly integrates with Steam. And I do think that's worth saying that Steam, the software experience has gotten so much better over the last couple of years. They've really mm-hmm. improved the software. They've made it so easy to use. And people making games have increasingly been optimizing their games for a Steam Deck. There's like Steam Deck settings on a lot of these games. Even Diablo 4, I played that using that workaround way through Battle.net when it first came out. Mm-hmm. And it didn't play that yeah, well. Yeah, that's the last time I tried it. Yeah, it wasn't that good. But I, it probably is great now. <laughs> well, now it's on Steam. Now you yeah. can just install the Steam version. Although you do, it's annoying. You have to buy it on Steam, even if Ugh. you want it on Battle.net. What? So that's a pain. No, well, you can still do the workaround installation. That's true. And I'm but I'm saying it if you want the, the Steam way. version, yeah. Yeah, you do have to get it on Steam. Anyways, yeah, what a what a device, an even better version of something that I already loved. So uh, it's a it's just uh, really cool and has got me playing a bunch of Steam Deck again. Um, all right, Jason, <laughs> bring us home with your one more thing. Yeah, so I've been secretly watching Billions. What? Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, over the past couple of months, I've been uh, rewatching Billions because I wanted to kind of see how it ends. The last season just came out, and so I finished. Um, season six, which is the one without Bobby, and I just got wow. into season seven. Um, so you're ahead of me. Yeah, I just started. I just started um, like a couple episodes into season seven, and I've got to say, it is awful. Oh um, what? Oh no! Oh, no. <laughs> season season six, I wasn't especially. Sure what you were yeah, I had no idea where this Man, I'm I'm just kind of like watching just because I want to mm. see where they go with this thing. That's but too bad. This oh, no. show just fell off a cliff. Like the I, mean, I think that happened a couple well, seasons okay. before. Yeah, let's so. say, Jason, I don't know what you thought of season six. Do you want to back up and just kind of talk about? Well, it? that's what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, I'm talking yeah, about yeah. Season okay. Six. Yeah, it's. Rough. I'm only a yeah. couple of episodes into season seven. All the season seven throws everything out in another way. So okay, so okay. here's here's the 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 main premise here is that. This is a show about this guy, Chuck, Paul Giamatti, Chuck Rhodes, and Bobby Axelrod, um, Damien Lewis, and their kind of ongoing rivalry in cat and mouse game and back and forth. And Chuck is a prosecutor, and Bobby is a billionaire, and Chuck is trying to get Bobby, and then Bobby's trying to get Chuck, and blah, 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 blah. But at the end of season five, Chuck manages to get Bobby into doing, to do something illegal, and Bobby flees the country, and then suddenly he is no longer on the show for season six, and enter this new guy. Guy, Mike Prince, played by Corey Stahl, who is another billionaire who just becomes the new target of Chuck's uh, maneuvering and, and scheming and, and going after. And throughout all of season six, uh, Mike Prince proves to be a pretty piss poor replacement for Bobby in a lot of different ways. Um, he's like this like noble billionaire who wants to do all these great things like provide uh, a universal basic income for people in New York and bring the Olympics to New York. And Chuck just has this kind of, uh, kind of never ending obsession that just doesn't make sense with bringing him down. Suddenly everything is just kind of falling apart. The writing it's really bad it's billions was always a show that was full of kind of pop culture references but they've really taken it to the extreme just every other sentence is some uh, reference to something or another some of them are just so out there that they don't even make sense in context um the scheming has just gotten boring the characters are just going in totally 
like Circles. terrible directions. Um, Taylor, who is this great non-binary character who was a traitor who had like a sense yeah, of morals and has like and no moral arc in season six, just like walks in a circle 12 times. <laughs> That's how I remember it. <laughs> well, no, they throw out their morals and become this kind of like, um, uh, yes, that's true. Psychopath in a way that just doesn't make any sense for their character development over the last few years. And then in season seven, Mike Prince goes from like noble billionaire to suddenly on a dime, he becomes a fascist who's running for president <laughs> and is supposed to be Donald Trump. And the characters what? are all now trying to take him down. None of it makes sense. I'm going to watch till the end just because I'm pot committed at this point. But like, it's really bad. This, if you're going to wow. ever watch this show, stop at season like Five. Stop, stop after Bobby leaves. Four. Or whenever Bobby leaves. Even before that, that's where I stopped. Five five isn't that great. Four, four, the end of four is really the culmination. I didn't mind five. I'll go on record and say I didn't mind it. And I think people can watch all the way till Bobby leaves. And then maybe after that, the okay. show is just over. <laughs> and that's okay. Bobby comes back in season seven. That's the I other know, part of but, this. Uh, the show lost me when Taylor left yeah. and then returned. Yep. It was upon Taylor's return that that they seemed to not know what they were doing yeah. because Taylor leaving Axe Cap <laughs> and going off on their own and forming their own Which company was such a fun and then plot line, being I an thought. interesting th- an interesting like third party spoiler who's yep. playing both sides and working with Chuck and working with Bobby that was a really cool setup and Taylor's such a great character that it was fun to watch that play out and then the whole thing just collapsed and Taylor was suddenly back at Axe Cap and then it just got so stupid. And I was like, oh, we've totally gone backwards and the writers don't know what they're doing. That, for me, was the moment where I was like, I'm out. I don't need to watch anymore. I've watched enough for the This joke. is a therapy session where we say, this is what ruined billions for me. I, I think for <laughs> me, it was like when Wendy and Bobby suddenly had sexual tension and we were supposed to believe that that was like a love oh, triangle the entire later. time. <laughs> that moment, there's like a moment when she and Bobby are like naked together in a hot tub. And I was like, I don't know what's going on anymore. Jason, do you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah, that that's season five. And then <laughs> season five ends with what like, scene? they're about to kiss or about to yeah, have a relationship they're like and then about Bobby to, leaves. And and then, and then she's like, no, I can't. I'm with Chuck or something. I don't know. That's my imitation. Well, and that, where that was an interesting goes. relationship. Exactly. I think like, the three of them. Like, it, it started out interesting because it wasn't romantic, you know? And, like, then it was as though they kind of didn't know what to do. It was intimate but not romantic. Exactly. I think her relationship with Bobby was always super interesting during the seasons that I watched yep. because they had this really unguarded, intimate relationship while she was married to his mortal exactly. enemy. <laughs> who was trying to destroy yeah. him. And I think that just made for a lot of really fun stuff. But crossing that line, that does seem like a shark jump, right? Yeah, like it that was seems not like good. a Rubicon you just can't cross. Wendy and Bobby can never sleep together or even really have or even sexual talk to each other energy. or sort of intimate mm-hmm. that they want to. Like the fact that that even yeah. occurred, I was like, I, I should have just stopped watching they that. They ran out of ideas <laughs> on that show. That's too bad to hear, Jason. That, oh, well, RIP to Billions. Uh, it was a great show. Yeah, it was fun for a little while. Um, all right, well. That is our episode. We did it. We made another one. We crossed the finish line. Yay. I mean, the thing about season seven of Billions is that they shouldn't have added that multiverse because suddenly all the stakes were gone. <laughs> it's true. That really that really undid everything. They should have started with the multiverse or uh, or never added one at all. Well, uh, in this in this universe and many others, that is the end of this episode of Triple Click. Thank you all so much for listening in all of the universes in which you're listening, and uh, I'll see the two of you next week. See you next week. Bye. Triple Click is produced by Jason Schreier, Maddie Myers, and me, Kirk Hamilton. I edit and mix the show and also wrote our theme music. Our show art is by Tom DJ. Some of the games and products we talked about on this episode may have been sent to us for free for review consideration. You can find a link to our ethics policy in the show notes. Triple Click is a proud member of the Maximum Fun Podcast Network, and if you like our show, we hope you'll consider supporting us by becoming a member at MaximumFun.org join. Find us on Twitter at TripleClickPod, send email to TripleClick at MaximumFun.org, and find a link to our Discord in the show notes. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Maximum Fun, a worker-owned network of artist-owned shows supported directly by you.